Lord Jesus, you are such a good, merciful, patient, and loving Savior, and we thank you for what you have done for us. I pray that as we consider this passage together this morning, that you would be glorified, that we would have a greater understanding of what you've done, what you've called us to, and how you've empowered us to do that. Would you take the meditations and the thoughts and the, the, just the things that you have brought to mind for me this week and help them to minister to the hearts of the women in this room, that they would be encouraged, that they would be brought to a greater desire to study your word because they want to know what it is that you have for them. And we thank you that we get to do this together as sisters and as a community, and we want to continue to honor that together this morning. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. So there's this program that the military has for families as they move around the world. Um, When you're new to an overseas assignment especially, they provide you a sponsor. A sponsor is somebody who helps you to get acclimated to the, the military community there overseas they can help you get used to the customs of the, the host community the community that you're in. The first time my family moved overseas, we moved to Berlin in 1981, which was a very interesting experience. I, I'll tell you about that sometime. Um, but when we arrived, we didn't have a sponsor. And so things kind of went haywire. We didn't know where to go. We didn't know what to do. None of our stuff was there yet. It was pretty miserable. So whenever you enter into a new community, it's really nice to have someone who can kind of give you the lay of the land and show you what's expected of you. Israel was kind of in a similar place at the beginning of our passage this week, weren't they? They were no longer slaves. They needed to know how to live now. They, don't, they didn't have Pharaoh commanding them what to do. They needed to know what to do now. What, what they needed to know and what God wants to show them this week is that a redeemed life is an obedient life. And they're going to need help. So we're going to consider the Israel's change in status as a redeemed people. We're going to consider that being redeemed means being obedient. And then we're going to consider the help that God has given both them and us to live that way. So first, let's consider their change in status. Remember last week as Mary was giving us tips for entering into this new section of Exodus, that the goal for the, for the redemption of God's people was always God's people in God's place, under God's rule. Um, So this week, we see the realization of the first one, God's people, and the initiation of the third one, God's rule. But we're not at God's place yet. We understand that God's place is that land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan, uh, of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The, The beginning of chapter 19 finds us in a promised place, but it's not that promised place. The first two verses of our chapter set the stage, but it's more than just setting the stage. It's rich with hope and with promise. If you read with me, starting in verse 1, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. That's a lot of repetition for just two verses. So there's something important that we need to see here. What mountain are they at? They're at Mount Sinai. Why is that significant? Well, this is the same mountain where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, it was called Mount Horeb. Same mountain, same place. 
Verses 11 through 12 in chapter 3, Moses asks, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He, God, said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. We start the shift of tone in the book of Exodus from journey to arrival. Yes, God had promised them the land of Canaan and his people would get there eventually, but this was the first step that was promised to Moses, and God had kept it. Have you ever been on a long road trip when you were a kid stuck in the back seat and Johnny's poking at you and your other brother smells really bad and you just really don't want to be there with him anymore? And you're just dying for that first night to just get out of the car, get away from them. Gotta wonder, did Moses kind of feel that way? (laughs) Right? We have been stuck here together. We are finally at that first place that God promised us, and here we are. And as we move on, I mean, this is the arrival. This is the the identity of God's people. He has brought them there. He's going to show them who they are. But he's also going to call them to be obedient. What we see in the next section of our chapter is the initiation of what's called the Mosaic Covenant. It's given through Moses to the people of Israel. It's given through Moses to the people of Israel, and the Lord says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession." Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Briefly, I do want to touch on covenants. Borrowing from an article that Whitney wrote for the Bible Project about the five covenants, I recommend it. It was super helpful if you're ever curious about how that kind of frames the structure of, of Scripture as a whole. Well, there's no agreement amongst scholars about the actual number of covenants. There are five explicit, and like nobody argues about these covenants because they are so clear in Scripture. The first one is um, with Noah and the promise that God would never again destroy the earth. This was an unconditional covenant with the people. God was going to keep it regardless of what the people had done. The second one was with Abraham. This is where we get the promise of an offspring, the land, and the universal blessing. All the nations are going to be blessed. And again, while there is a sort of condition on this one because man does have a part to play, ultimately this covenant is going to be fulfilled completely by God's power, regardless of whether the people are obedient all the time or not. And that brings us now to this third one, the Mosaic Covenant. And this one is definitely a conditional covenant. If you will, then you shall be. There's no question there that there's a condition here. So the question that we ask then when we read this is, does this now make the Abrahamic covenant null and void? Well, no, it doesn't. It actually builds upon it. Because if you, if you trace Israel's obedience and disobedience through the Old Testament, you're going to find that their status as God's chosen people doesn't change. So this, this condition is not that you will be my people if you obey. It's that you will have the blessings of being my people if you obey. um, Their experience of the fullness of fellowship with God is conditioned on their obedience. So we want to be careful when we consider the order of salvation and obedience. We considered in the supplemental questions this week that God himself sets up the right order between salvation and obedience. 
First, they saw him and him alone bring them out of Egypt and to destroy the Egyptians. And they saw how he saved them. Only then, in second, does he lay out the expectation of obedience. In God's economy, obedience does not bring about a change in status. Status change brings about obedience. Everything that follows verse 4, all the instructions that we read for the rest of this section are given to a people who have already been redeemed. We need to not miss this. If we get the order wrong, we slip off into thinking that somehow we contributed to our salvation. And therefore, God is not as necessary or not as powerful, not as worthy, and we would be fools to do so. God has brought them to himself, and now he's going to show them what it looks like to live as his people, because that is who they already are. So Moses brings the conditions of this covenant to the people, and they promise all that the Lord has spoken we will do in verse 8. God tells Moses he's going to come down, and he's going to let the people hear him speak to Moses so that they will believe Moses. But he knows, doesn't he, that Israel's not ready for this. They need to prepare to listen. God has already been in their midst in the pillar of cloud and fire, but until now he has only spoken to and through Moses. Now he's going to turn the sound on for everybody. And just as in the burning bush his presence makes the ground holy, his voice and his words are pure and holy and all-consuming. They are not holy. And they need to be consecrated, set apart, prepared in order to experience this fellowship fully. They're commanded to wash their clothes and avoid sex for two days. It's not because washing clothes and abstinence makes you holy. The point here is that they were meant to be outward representations of their inner heart preparation, their change in routine, their intentionality of being ready to hear from God. Then he sets the limits on the mountain, again knowing that his holiness is not safe for them. If they were to approach and touch even the foot of the mountain without proper preparation and obedient hearts, they would be consumed. The limit set here is not one of Ooh, don't touch me, you're dirty. It's a limit of love and of mercy, such that they would not come before they were ready. So think of it like this. How many of you go camping? Oh, only to, really? Oh, come on. I know I'm the oddball here that I don't go camping. So, I mean, <laughs> I haven't been camping in 16 years. I know. A lot of you are probably thinking that's crazy. How do you live in a place like this and not go camping? Just trust me, it's not a good idea. But anyway, what's your favorite part of camping? Anybody? Campfire. Mine too. But when I went camping, I would go with a group of people that had small children. And when you have small children, you want to teach them, right? You want them to be safe. The fire is beautiful. And the, the way the flames dance and the cracks and the pops, and it's just, it's, it's a peaceful, it's a warm, it's just, it just wraps you up and you just want to be there. I mean, the energy and the light that comes from such destruction and decay is a fascinating contrast in nature. So these kids in this group, as I watched the parents teach their children to respect the destructive nature of fire, it wasn't that they wanted to keep them away from the fire, that they wanted them to be cold, that they didn't want them to enjoy it. They wanted them to respect it. They taught them, no, don't get too close. Don't touch because it'll hurt. I want you to be safe, but I want you to enjoy 
they knew that the fire was beautiful and beneficial, and they wanted their children to understand this as well and to enjoy it to its fullest while still being safe. God's restrictions and limits were not meant to make Israel afraid, but to help them be safe and to understand their need. They needed to be cleansed. They needed safe passage, and he was the only one who could provide it. If they obeyed by preparing and waiting for him to call them, which he said he would do, in verse 13, he says, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. When the trumpet sounded, but not before, the limits were for their benefit and for their safety, not for punishment. So finally, on the third day, which you all got that reference, right? If not, we'll come back to that one later. Um, Something they had not seen since Egypt when God rained down the hail and the fire from heaven. They were surrounded and they saw flashes like lightning and great rumbling like thunder and a thick cloud. The noise was so loud and strong that everyone trembled. The smoke was thick and it smelled and it was a consuming fire of God's presence on the mountain. Imagine the smell of the smoke, the taste in your mouth. Remember how hard it was to breathe a couple years ago when the gorge was on fire, and that fire wasn't even right in front of us. They were in the thick of that smell and the difficulty of breathing. There was no denying that something had arrived. Moses would talk to him, and God would speak and get louder and louder, and he would answer with more thunder. And as overwhelming as the experience must have been, stop and consider what a great gift this actually was. No other God speaks to his people. No other God interacts directly and intimately with his people. And God didn't speak with any other people than Israel. They heard with their ears the very voice of God, and it terrified them. He proceeded to speak the Ten Commandments. It's interesting because I'll confess I haven't looked completely through the rest of the book of Exodus to confirm this, but I think this is the only time where it doesn't say, and God spoke to Moses. And God told Moses to tell the people. God just spoke. Everyone heard the Ten Commandments spoken out of the mountain. And we're not going to really spend any time pulling the Ten Commandments apart this week because you're going to pull them apart over the next two weeks in your study, so I'm not going to take away from that. But I do want to note, however, did you see the completeness of them? They deal with our relationships with God and with others. They deal with our family obligations. They deal with both deed and our heart attitudes. Can you think of a sphere of life where these Ten Commandments do not touch or have place to be in how you behave and act? We're going to get to the way the Ten Commandments play out over the next month, but this set of commandments, though, is what it looks like to live as God's chosen and redeemed people. And immediately we are confronted with Israel's need. Read with me in verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. It's appropriate to be fearful of the power of God, especially when it's revealed before them in such a strong and overwhelming way. But their response to that fear 
was incorrect. Israel gave in to their fear and they pulled away from the fullness of fellowship with God. I don't know if it's because deep down in their hearts they knew they were unworthy or they didn't really trust God's word that they would be safe when they approached. The text doesn't really explain. But what they did was they asked for a mediator. They asked Moses to speak to them for him. And they moved away. Literally, it says, far off from the mountain. The exact opposite direction that God called them to go. Moses tries to encourage them to tell them that God had come to test. And that testing is is literally revealing their hearts. So that they would have a right understanding of who God is. And then not sin. Obedience is hard. A cursory glance through the rest of the Old Testament shows that Israel is not great at obeying the word of God. In Deuteronomy, when this covenant is reestablished again, Israel's warned that if they obeyed, they would be blessed. But if they disobeyed, they're going to be cursed. And then if you keep reading through, you see the evidence that obedience equals the land. Many times throughout the Old Testament, Israel turns to idols, and then they're given over to their enemies and exiled from the land. But let me ask you a question before we start judging Israel too much. Are we any different? Sisters, fellow believers in Christ, you were once in slavery, and you have been set free. You are no longer oppressed by sin and death. You had no hope of saving yourself, and just like Israel, you needed a mediator What a joy to realize that God sent his very son to be that mediator for you. God in his great mercy came down to rescue his people. We read in Titus 2 that it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Just like God promised Israel that they would be his treasured possession, Christ redeemed and purified a people for his own possession by dying on their, our behalf. We did nothing He did everything, and it was complete, which we know, because on the third day, there it is, he rose from the dead. He raised to new life, and we who have repented and trusted in him are united with him in that new life, and we are now waiting for the appearance, the second appearance of our Savior. You've been saved from the power of sin, just as Israel was saved from the oppression of Egypt. And the right response to that salvation is to live in obedience. A reverent obedience to the one who saved you. And it looks the same as it did for Israel. Does your life reflect your change in status? And yet we, like Israel, are unable in the flesh to do this perfectly. God's presence on the mountain was meant to be that visual reminder to not sin. And you say, but we don't have that. And I say, but yes, you do. Because when you are united with Christ, you are given the Holy Spirit who is present with you to be that reminder to not sin, to empower you to say no to sin when you are confronted with it. Through that empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we're able to grow in obedience, to make progress, 
to, to ever more changing in appearance to better reflect Christ. So pray. Ask for the Holy Spirit to work in you as you struggle with specific sin. Yes, be specific with your sin. Acknowledge it. Repent of it. Seek the support of community and other sisters, other people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to help you and walk with you in that. And don't take your change in status lightly. Do you consider how you approach your worship? Do you have a right reverence for what it is that you are entering into? Remember who you used to be. Rejoice that you are not that anymore. And submit yourself to the holiness of God. If you're here this morning as a visitor, we're glad that you're here. If this seems new to you, then maybe you've never heard about the freedom that can be found in the repentance for forgiveness of sins. Do you want to experience the freedom of being a chosen person of God, of being a child of God? We want to help you see that. We want you to see the freedom that you have because of what Christ has done. We want you to see that in his kindness, God has made a way of safe passage for you to be with him. He doesn't desire your destruction. He has given you his word so that you would both know his holiness and his grace. He has also given you a mediator greater than Moses was for Israel. One who has come and obeyed perfectly and who died in your place. Jesus' death was a sufficient sacrifice for your sin. The chasm between you and God has been bridged by the perfect Son of God, and we can rest in that assurance because just like God descended on Mount Sinai on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, bringing an end to the power of sin and death. You need only to recognize your need to turn away from your sin and to trust that God's word when he says that Christ's death on your behalf is enough, believe it. It's enough. If you want to know more, we want to talk to you. So come talk to me. Talk to someone at your table. Talk to the leader. Talk to anyone who seems to understand what it is that I'm talking about right now because we want more than anything for you to know this. We are redeemed sisters in Christ. It's who we already are. And, and through our unity with Christ, we are empowered by his spirit to live lives of reverent obedience to the one who saved us. So let's pray. Father God, you are mighty. You are perfect. Your holiness is so full and bright, it consumes and we confess that we don't often remember to fear it rightly. Would you remind us often of our status change? Help us to rest in that change and to rely on the Holy Spirit you have generously given us to help us live our lives in a way that reflects that redemption so that we may bring glory to you and what you have done through your Son. We love you, and we are so thankful. Thankful that you speak to us through your word. We pray that you would continue to cause us to want to read it, to understand it, Would you continue to open our minds and our hearts so that we can see and love you more? We praise you for all that you have done. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we ask these things. Amen.